Good morning, North Hills. To our family and friends and guests today, those who are with us in person and those who are joining us online. If you have your Bibles this morning, and of course we hope that you do, I invite you to turn me to the book of Habakkuk. 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 Pick one of your three. This is actually a week nine, and uh, next week, Lord willing, will be our final week in Habakkuk, as we have been working through this for a couple of months now, and as we are uh, on week two of chapter three, as we will pick up in verse three this morning. Uh, it is a, I was just reminded this morning how grateful I am personally that we, as a church, uh, that we delight in God's Word, and we also delight in systematically going through God's Word because honestly, how else would we end up in Habakkuk, right? <laughs> how else would we end up in Habakkuk chapter 3? And, uh, and even this text that we'll be in this morning, we're going to bite off a big uh, section of Scripture in verses 3 through uh, 16 this morning. Uh, but just as we as you initially kind of read through this, and it seems difficult and kind of, hey, what's going on here? But as you, as you peel back what's happening, as you look at uh, the context, as you look at uh, as what's being said, just kind of all the stuff that's happening, you just realize just how beautiful all of God's Word is. And so just very grateful for a church that, uh, that highly esteems God's Word. Before we uh, open up God's Word this morning, let us pray. Lord, I do thank you for this morning. I thank you for a chance to open your word. Thank you, Lord, for our congregation who delights in your word, uh, who yearns for your word. And Lord, this morning, um, we don't need my words. We need your word. And so I just pray, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each of us this morning. And that not only would you speak to us, Lord, but that we would hear from you and that we would desire to respond and uh, faith and obedience to your word. And so help us, Lord, as we walk through this text to, uh, to hear from you and uh, just to ultimately see Christ in this as he is our great hero. In his strong and precious name we do pray. Amen. Well, as we come to chapter 3 this morning, as we began chapter 3 last week, uh, again, not to recap for the sake of recapping, but all of this goes together. Uh, Habakkuk has been bringing his questions to the Lord uh, since verse since chapter one there, when he is looking around him and saying, "Hey, all this evil, Lord, what is going on?" And God says that I am bringing judgment against Israel and ultimately bringing judgment against even the world around Israel. And um, Habakkuk says, "Okay, God, I get that, but how can you, a holy God, use an unholy heathen nation like the Babylonians uh, to bring your will and your judgment?" And God says. Um, hey, I am God, and you're not. I can do what I want, how I want, and when I want. And so Habakkuk is, is realizing this. And we know even from the beginning, Habakkuk is a prophet of faith. He is not a faithless prophet. He is not an unfaithful individual, but he is of the remnant. He is looking to the Lord and trusting the Lord, but he's just asking the Lord. He's bringing his very real and honest questions to the Lord, and God is working through these couple of questions or complaints that he has. And so uh, we see in chapter 3 last uh, last week that Habakkuk is... His, his demeanor has changed. His position has changed. His questions have changed. He's gone from bringing these questions to the Lord. He's gone from asking God about this evil that's around him and being concerned with his evil to, to this prayer, to this praise to the Lord of thanking him for who he is. And so as we saw in the, the first three verses last week 
our first two verses, if you will, last week, where he says, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of years, revive in the midst of years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. And so he now believes and is trusting that God is going to bring judgment upon uh, not only Israel and the corrupt leadership that's there, but also he's going to use the Babylonians and also judge the Babylonians. Although they are used of God, that they are still uh, will be held accountable for their very sinful nature. And that's ultimately what chapter 2 is consumed with, are the woes unto the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, for, uh, for all that they have done and who they are, that God will bring judgment upon them. And so uh, this morning we're going to see in chapter 3, we're going to see this beautiful uh, description, this beautiful discourse of who God is. Uh, we'll see uh, who he, this this mighty and majestic warrior that God is, and that He is on the way, in essence, to save Israel. Uh, not just then, but how He has saved them in the past, and He'll save them now amidst the Babylonians, and ultimately how He will save God's people for eternity. And so, this is a passage uh, that doesn't just look to the present. Of the Babylonians, uh, capti- the captivity that is to come, and doesn't look doesn't look to just the present of of what's going on in the world around them, but looks back to what God has done, and looks ultimately forward to the fulfillment of all that God's going to do for His people. So, so much is happening in this text, and so let's just um, can you read it and then come back and 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 uh, dice it up. Let's do that. So Habakkuk chapter three. We'll just start there in verse 1 again and read through 16 and then come back. So Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shinnegoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you in your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of years. Revive it in the midst of years. Make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence, and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of uh, cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the, at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. 
You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And then the prophet responds, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Right? There's a lot going on in those verses, rather. A lot happening in that passage. A lot of imagery. And this is one thing that Habakkuk gives us in his book uh, from beginning of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and now chapter 3. It's just some beautiful imagery that, uh, that you have to kind of take a step back and to see what's going on. Also, as you kind of study Habakkuk, uh, all of Habakkuk, but especially chapter 3, you're going to see a lot of theologians say the same thing. We don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> what is, if you look in footnotes, it says it may mean this or may mean this. So we're not going to get into the weeds of, of some of this. We want to see what we do know, what we can affirm from the truth of Scripture. And as we did last week, we're going to go and let Scripture uh, explain itself and look at a lot of uh, different passages that will help us to understand what's going on there. Well, let's step back to verse 3 there. And a lot happening in verse 3. It says, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, as we were walking, working through this a few weeks ago, someone said, uh, what does that mean, God came from Timon? Is this like his hometown? Is this his origin story? Is this where God began? Uh, well, obviously not, because God has no beginning. God is the beginning. God is the end. God has existed forever, uh, and He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so what does this mean? A better translation is to say that he shall come from, that God shall come from Timon, and the Holy One from shall come from Mount Paran. And so uh, these are two locations that are kind of associated with Mount Sinai that we know that the law came from. And so what he's doing here, he is pointing back to whenever God came and presented himself, revealed himself to his people and brought the law. That, that he, he showed up, that he came to his people. And this is kind of the ultimate the picture that we see in verse 3, that we're going to see it again in verse uh, 13, I believe it is, that God comes to his people. This is a beautiful truth, a beautiful truth of the gospel. It conveys this rich truth of the gospel that God came. That God comes, that he comes to his people. He reveals himself to his people. We celebrate this uh, every December with Advent, the coming of the Lord, that He comes to His people. And so we see one aspect of this, that, that it looks back to Sinai when God came to man. When He came to man to reveal the law, to, to give His written law, that we know that it forms so much of Israel's history and, and, and all that Israel would follow. But we know the law ultimately did not lead to life. We know that it led to death because no one could keep the law. But God revealed Himself to His people. He came from heaven to Mount Sinai to reveal His word to His people. And so Habakkuk is looking back to how God had done that. He's looking forward to how God will reveal himself again uh, against Babylon. Because he has been praying, so where is this evil? What's happening? How can you use Babylon? But now he's looking to and trusting God, just like you came to your people at Mount Sinai, you will come again to your people and reveal yourself to us. And we see this confidence and this hope in the prophet. 
We'll see it again in verse 16 where his, his kind of demeanor changes. His trust clearly is in the Lord. He has gone from asking God, where are you in the midst of this evil and suffering to acknowledging the presence of God amongst the people of God? And that is our hope today, right? That sometimes we look and we may, we, may not, we may not say it out loud, we may not admit it, we may not acknowledge it, but sometimes we may ask and struggle, Lord, where are you in the midst of this evil? Where are you in the midst of the struggling of our world? And it's always the same. God is amongst his people. God is present amongst his people. God is never absent for the very nature of God as he is everywhere at all times. And he is present amongst his people and so where you look in chapter 1, where Habakkuk says, where are you, Lord? To now where he knows that God has come. And so he looks back to Sinai where God came. He looks forward to, uh, to even where God's going to deal with Babylon. He also looks to the future of Christ's coming. He looks to the future of Christ's coming. Just as we said that we celebrate Advent, the coming of Christ, that we see Habakkuk chapter 3 is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of the Messiah. We see this picture of God as this mighty warrior who shows up, who's majestic, who's wonderful, who's arrayed in light and is there to, to judge the nations. We see that ultimately Christ fulfills this. And so we see that Habakkuk 3, that yes, although for the original audience, that their, their hope is going to be in God showing up and bringing judgment against Babylon, that would, would be a temporary solution. That would be a temporary redemption. That ultimately, it would be Christ who comes. And we'll see in verse 13 how he comes and crushes not just the head of the Babylonians, but the head of his true enemy. And then we also see a final, uh, a final fulfillment of this in, uh, in the final and last coming of Christ. Because we see, as we celebrate in December, the coming of Christ, there's two comings. There is coming, uh, and we see in the Gospels, and uh, whenever he comes and uh, is, is wrapped in a babe, but ultimately his second coming. Go with me to Revelation chapter 19, the coming that we have yet to experience whenever the Lord will return for his people once and for all. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We're going to see this in Habakkuk, a, a judge who is faithful and true, and a judge who makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. We'll see that over and over in Habakkuk. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so we see Christ returning at the end of days to, to gather his church and to, to, to defeat the enemy is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so we see Habakkuk chapter 3 point us to the coming of the Lord, that he has come to his people, that he will show up here in Habakkuk and that he will uh, come as a babe and then ultimately he will have his final, um, his, his second coming. 
and his final coming for his people. But as we continue in, uh, in the second half of verse 3, because 3 is kind of broken up into two parts there. The first one that he's come from Timon, the Holy One of Mount uh, Perrin, Salah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. And so we see, before we kind of get into the might of God, we see the majesty of God. We see that Habakkuk looks to the Lord and says that you are a majestic creator. You are full of splendor. You are full of brightness. That the light is, con- that you are consumed in light because you are the light. And we see that in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light. He, does, he didn't just create light. He is light. And he, uh, he is the light of the world. And we see that Christ ultimately came to us as the light of the world in the midst of a very dark place. We also see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that he is immersed in light, that everything around him is light. Because there is no sin to be found in the Lord. He is majestic. He is full of splendor, covered the heavens. And the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And it says, there he veiled his power. There he veiled his power. That's an interesting line to me. As you think about the sun, and you can look at the sun. The sun reveals when the sun is out and the, the light is shining. You can see so much, and you can see so much more than when the sun is, is, is out, when it's dark. But you can't fully look at the sun, right? You can't fully see the glory of the sun. So the sun both reveals And the sun also conceals. So it reveals the glory of God to a degree, but it also conceals the glory of God because His glory is too great. It is a light that reveals and a light that conceals. Such an accurate description of the majesty of God that we see in part and we behold that which God reveals, but we cannot stand the full majesty of our Creator. And then as we continue uh, in verse 5, we see this vivid description of God, our righteous judge. It says, Before Him, pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. When the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. So we see this picture we see in in Revelation, we see in Daniel, we see in Isaiah, we see all through Scripture that God is a God who brings His wrath, and His wrath to be used to bring His judgment, that God will always is a just judge, that He will judge those who are not in Christ with the fullness of His wrath, and for those who are in Christ, the fullness of His wrath has been poured out on Christ. And so we see this picture of this warrior coming, this majestic warrior that's that's covered in splendor and light, but he is a warrior who is coming to, to demonstrate his wrath. He is a warrior who has been stirred up. And this is the warrior God that Habakkuk looks at, that Habakkuk in the beginning of his book who is who's, who's powerless and helpless and doesn't know where to turn and what to do, and now he sees his God who is a mighty warrior who is coming to save, who is coming to redeem. He is a warrior who is coming to lay the earth low. 
Go with me to Psalm chapter 97. Very similar language here. Psalm 97, verse 4 and 5. It says, His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord. Before the Lord of all the earth. And so we see that I mean, sometimes we forget just how powerful, how mighty, how strong, how incredibly cosmic our God is. The mountains wax before Him. These Mighty mountains that are deeply embedded in the earth. I know we're from Louisiana. We know very little about mountains. We've seen them on movies, right? And maybe on vacation. But these mighty mountains, these mountains of old, it says, these eternal mountains, they're scattered. They're laid low. They're melted like wax. And who else can do this except our God? I love that that verse 6 there where it says that he measured the earth, that as he arrives on the scene as this mighty warrior, he stood and he measured the earth. Have you ever measured anything in your life? I measure a lot of things throughout the week. I'm a contractor and constantly, when I get out of my truck on a job site, I always have two things. I pull out my little fancy clip that has my my tape measure and has a very powerful flashlight. So, So I know what it means to measure and typically, when you see someone measure, they're about to subdue something. They're about to change something. You know, if you're doing some DIY projects in your house, right? You get the tape measure out. You see the wife, husband's a little tip. If you see your wives today measuring the room, something's about to change, all right? Flooring's going down. Painting's happening. Something's about to change. When you measure it, you're assessing it. You're sizing it up. You're seeing, uh, you're, you're doing all this evaluation. So you see this picture of God. He is measuring up the earth. Who can measure? the breadth of the earth who can measure all that is in our planet our god can he stands and he measures it and not only does he measure it in the sense of subduing and having dominion over all that he has created but it's also he is surveying and he is looking upon the hearts of men since he looked and he looked and he shook the nations for he is judging both the sin and the sinner Because he has complete dominion over the earth, over the eternal mountains of old and these ancient everlasting hills. They cannot stand amidst our mighty God. The affairs of men cannot stand, but they are but a breath in their length and their scope. So the prophet here, he is reminded and he reminds us just how awesome our God is. That's a word that is so lost in our culture today, this word awesome. But he, God is the only one who is truly awesome, who is full of awe and wonder. And so we see this awesome nature, this incredible nature of God, this warrior who comes, who stands and measures the earth. And then you see this reminder in verse 7. And said, I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. And there's some uncertainty here exactly who Cushion is. But we know that Cushion and Midian both represent the same type of people, the peoples of the enemies of God that God has in the past demonstrated His judgment on. 
And so as he's thinking about this mighty warrior who shows up on the scene, who shows up to, to measure the earth and to, to, lay, to lay flat the mountains and these everlasting hills, he thinks back to what God has done already. He thinks back to a God who, this is not his first army, the Babylonians to defeat. This are not the first enemies of God to rear their head and to try to just take over the known world. And so as he looks at the, 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 the people of the Cushan and the Midian, two former nations that oppressed Israel, God brought judgment upon them. The prophet here is recalling others that God had dealt with to remember that God is mighty, to remember that God is very active and very present and very able to defend his great glory. The Babylonians are not the first and they will not be the last. And how many have, have risen up, the enemies of God, since the Babylonians? Both in a broad sense of, of nations who have been very against the, uh, the things of the Lord and even uh, enemies in our own life. But yet God is greater than all. There is no adversary that is worthy of our God. And so for today, we would do well to remember that all the foes of the Lord have been vanquished and all the foes of the Lord will be vanquished. And there is no true battle, there is no true skirmish that our God is greater. As we continue in verse 8 there, it says, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or streams, another translation says? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation. So the warrior shows up on the scene. He's reminded of, of the past uh, feats of the, the warrior and how he has uh, defeated his enemies in the past. And now he looks at how he has done that. He's looked at this miraculous ways that God has saved and intervened for his people before. That, he has, that God has performed miraculous acts in the past to save His people. Because He is calling clearly back to the Red Sea when it was divided, and the Jordan whenever it was divided, whenever He split these bodies of water. And other moments in Israel's history where God has miraculously shown up to save His people. Because if God can do amazing works then to save His people from a very... Uh, very abysmal situation. How much more can he continue to do, to do that? And so the prophet looks back and says, okay, I see the Babylonians. It seems like we're outnumbered and outgunned and there's just no hope out of this and they're going to take over and they're going to kill us. But he says, oh wait, God is not just a mighty warrior. He's not just laid low our enemies in the past, but he's done so in miraculous ways and he's still able to do so today. If he can do these amazing works then, he can do so now. And our God has absolutely no limits. And I love the fact that our God rarely does the same thing twice. That he continually uh, intercedes for Israel throughout the Old Testament. He continually intercedes for his people today. Our God is a mighty warrior who performs miraculous acts. As you continue in verse 10, it says, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and it lifted up its hands on high. So we see this picture of not just that God has power over um, 
his enemies and is able to subdue his enemies at his will and at his whim. But even creation itself waits on and groans for the coming of the Lord. So the mountains saw you and they writhed. And what some translations say, they waited. The raging waters, they swept on the deep, gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. So creation waits on and groans for the coming of the Lord, but it also worships the Lord. Go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Starting in verse 18. As we think about the the future glory of the Lord and the future coming of the Lord. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That would be a good way to sum up even Habakkuk's struggles, struggles, right? With these sufferings that you're enduring and this this tension and stress that you're experiencing from the, the evil of the Babylonians. He said this is nothing in short of comparing to the great glory that is revealed and waiting on us. Verse, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience and there's so much going on there in romans chapter 8 but it is a reminder for us we go back to Habakkuk chapter 3 that the creation is waiting the mountains are waiting the raging waters are waiting the prophet Habakkuk are waiting the remnant of Israel are waiting patiently for God to do what God will do And redeemed people wait. We wait for the Lord, for we know that God will always show up. We know that God will always intercede. We know that God will always save, if not in this life, in the life to come. Creation waits and groans for the coming of the Lord. In verse 11, it says, The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Now some would say there's a kind of a callback here to Joshua whenever the sun stood still and very well could be. But there's, I think that Habakkuk chapter 3 is, is so much pointing to more of a future coming of the Lord. Go with me to a, the other minor prophet, Joel. Just turn a few books over to your left. Joel chapter 2. Verse 31 says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. 
Did I read the right verse? Oh, I was I missed it by one. I'm sorry. I, I had an underline in my Bible and it threw me off. Let's back up two verses, starting verse 30. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and the columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so we see this picture of the, the sun standing still. It's this picture of the moon not giving the light of the sun, that this darkness sets in around, but yet the light of the Lord will shine bright forever. It's clear that the, the lightness is, replaces the darkness and it shines the brightest in the darkness. And our God is that light. As you continue in verse 12, we see that God marching. He says, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. Again, you have this picture of God who is bringing judgment to the enemies of God, who is bringing judgment once and forever. As he is threshing the nations in anger. This word threshed means to, to tread on. This imagery of utterly defeating his enemies. We'll see in just a moment, the end of verse 13. But this is our God, our mighty warrior, our Christ, who is the mighty warrior who defeats all of his enemies. And not just defeats a little bit, but places his foot upon their head, who treads on them, who threshes out the nations in a holy and righteous anger as he pours out his wrath against sin and sinners. And so Habakkuk, just every verse, every line is being reminded of the might and the power of God who is able to save and who will save, who will redeem the people of God. And then we come to verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of the anointed. So why does God show up? Why does this warrior God come? Why does Christ our King come as the, the warrior that He is? He does so to redeem and fight for and defend and to save His people. God comes to fight for and to save His people. A couple passages, 2 Samuel. Let's see if I can get the right verse this time. 2 Samuel chapter 5. One verse 24. And when you heard the sound of the march of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. It occurred to me as I was reading Habakkuk chapter 3. And just thinking through Habakkuk, you know, as you read through Samuel, as you read through other parts of, of Scripture, it's sometimes easy to lose sight of who the hero is, right, in Scripture. And it's not, we know the hero is not David. We know the hero is not Moses. We know the hero is not Abraham. We know the hero is God always. And there's no mistake in this in Habakkuk chapter 3 that it is, that it is God who is the hero. We know that it's ultimately Christ who is the hero, who is that warrior. But it is a reminder, just like he did with the Philistines, just like he's done time and time again, that he saves his people. Isaiah, flip there real quick. Isaiah 
Y'all need to practice learning where some of these books are anyway, right? Isaiah chapter 42. Verse 13. How does the Lord march? How does He go out? The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes. And I know that some of this may seem redundant as we go through this, but it's just this clear picture over and over and over again that our God is a mighty warrior, that he comes to save. He comes to save his people. God has come for His people and God is coming back for His people in the same way that we see in Habakkuk chapter 3 as a mighty warrior who has no counterpart, who has no worthy enemy. But then look at the second half of 13 and the next couple of verses. Just this beautiful picture of destruction. It says, you crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses the surging of mighty waters. What vivid imagery of God defeating His enemies, crushing the head, not just of an enemy, of the house of His enemies, of the house of the wicked, laying Him bare, laying Him exposed, piercing him with his own arrows, his own arrows. So the victor now becomes the victim. So this other warrior, this enemy, takes his own arrows, the Lord does, and pierces him on the head. So we see that our God demolishes, he crushes. And this is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3. It's been so long since we've been at Genesis chapter 3. Just turn there real quick. If you haven't been with us long in North Hills, you've never heard of this, the, the, the first utterance of the gospel, the first prophetic word was immediately after it was needed. Genesis chapter 3 is the story of the fall. And God is, is laying out His curses. And we'll start in verse 14. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a reference. This is a prophecy. This is a promise that the seed of the woman who ultimately will be Christ will bruise, will crush, will tread on the head of the enemy who is Satan. And we see this final blow, this final crushing of the head that comes in Revelation when Jesus shows up and declares victory. Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan 
under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so there is no doubt that it is God who wins. There is no doubt. It is Christ who is the victor, who crushes the head, not just of Babylon, not just of the future armies that would come, not just of our enemies and our life that we encounter and engage with on a daily basis, that all those are real and difficult and, uh, and, and struggled uh, and struggles, but that ultimately He defeats sin itself. For there is no more sin. There is no more fear. There is no more weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering. The Christ shows up and crushes the head of the house of the wicked. That He crushes the head of the house of His enemy. That He once and for all, when He will come back, and He will end sin. And what a glorious day that will be. It's not just a promise to crush Satan, his forces, and his followers, but all of pain and all of sin. And then finally we come here to Habakkuk's response. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Imagine being the prophet, receiving this oracle, receiving this vision of the, the might and the splendor and the power of God, defeating his enemies. It is too much for the prophet to handle. It strikes him in the core of his being. But he says, yet, in verse 16, yet. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. And so think of the, the, uh, the, the drastic change in Habakkuk's response to the Lord from chapter 1 now to the end of chapter 3, where he is so worried he is so anxious. He's bringing all of these questions. He's not being quiet. He's, he's bringing all these questions to the Lord. But now he says, God, I am reminded of your greatness. I am reminded of your might. I am reminded of what you've done. I am reminded of the promises of what you will do. So I'm just going to sit right here and I'm going to wait. I'm going to be quiet. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to have faith. I'm going to look to you and I'm going to believe in you because I know that that day will come. Now, specifically in their context with the uh, Babylonians, it's another 60 years before the Lord does something mighty amongst the Babylonians and, and, uh, and saves the Israelites out of their hands. So it's not six days. It's not six weeks or six months. It's 60 years. But the prophet says, I will quietly wait. And that is our response as God's people today, as we find ourselves in the midst of evil, suffering, pain, sin, difficulty, tragedy, things that we cannot seem to bear, that we look to and trust the Lord and quietly wait for the day of salvation. For God will not forget and He will not forsake His people. Habakkuk knows that God is coming to rescue his people 
both temporally and ultimately. He will wait quietly on the Lord. So like Habakkuk, we quietly and patiently wait on Christ. For He will answer us in our distress. He will not forget us, for He will come again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for this morning. I thank You for this text, Lord. And thank You that You don't leave Your Word to us as a mystery, Lord, that You Reveal to us your truth by your spirit. Thank you for this reminder of who you are. Your might and your valor. Your strength. For the truth that you have come. And that you are coming again. And that you've left us with the Holy Spirit. That we do not have to lean on our own strength. But we can trust in him to help us to be quiet and wait. So as we sing, Lord, may we sing of your praises as we come to the communion table. May we be reminded of what you have done for us on the cross and how you've received that wrath. Help us respond in faith to you. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.